Good morning, everyone. We're finishing this morning our series that's gone for a couple months on the book of James, the letter of James. And I'd like to read with you this morning the very last section of chapter 5, the verses 13 through 20. This is the conclusion of his letter. It should be projected on the wall in a second, or otherwise, please feel free to use your own Bible or device wherever you can find it. The end of the letter of James. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As we've gone through James, we've noticed that he has, um, he has been writing to this migrant community spread around uh, Palestine and the areas just outside of Palestine. He's written to them about enduring through trials and suffering, about paying attention to how you use your tongue, about what true religion is, to visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world or from the empire, to not show partiality. He talked about wisdom, what's really wise, how can we be wise people, how can we be authentic people, how can we move away from fighting and quarreling, from envy and jealousy, how can we move away from arrogance about tomorrow, and how can we move away from this idea of using our wealth to oppress and to, um, to, to take from others. And I found it really interesting that James, after all these big, huge themes in which he really uses sometimes pretty strong and rough languages, language, he narrows down into a, a kind of an intimacy He narrows his focus down to the local community of Jesus' followers. He becomes personal. He becomes intimate. He shows them the way to live in this world in which they find themselves of injustice and in this world of suffering and in this world of rich versus poor. James shows them how to live. And I think the fundamental word that we could use to describe this section is the word community. James tells us in this, in this ending of this letter to do a number of things that are quite difficult for us in general. First one is prayer. 
Prayer is hard. Prayer is hard for probably all of us. Praise is hard. Praise is not something that comes naturally to us. Praise is something you have to, you have to work at. It, it's a, it's a, it involves a change. Even harder is confessing our sins to one another. When's the last time you have ever done that? Or when's the last time that someone has confessed his or her sin to you? Even if it's a sin that they've committed against you. It's just not something that we do. Let alone bringing back a sinner. None of us wants to admit we're a sinner. None of us wants to think of the other person of a sinner. Let, let alone to think, oh, I need to go and bring that person. Who am I to bring this? this? These are all concepts that are totally out of our way of thinking. We simply do not know how to do them. And then there's the communal nature, again, which, which supersedes, which surrounds all of us, woven through all of us. The communal nature of what James is showing us. We, in our culture, in our society today, always choose for the individual. We have been brought up and taught and raised also in the church to believe that it is in the end finally about me as an individual. So all of this is quite difficult for us. And so one of the things I think that needs to change, and this is a familiar theme for me, you hear it almost all the time because it's so hard, is a fundamental understanding of how we live in connection with each other. We are fundamentally connected with each other. And in one of the commentaries that I used, this quote uh, appeared uh, in the commentary on this section which I think is very helpful, so we'll project it. This is um, from uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. There is another way to conceive of our life in God, but it requires a different worldview. Not a clockwork universe in which individuals function as discrete springs and gear, but one that looks more like a luminous web in which the whole is far more than the parts. In this universe, there is no such thing as an individual apart from his or her relationships. There is no such thing as an individual apart from his or her relationships. And then she goes on, every interaction between people and people between things and things, between people and things, and between things and things, changes the face of history. Life on earth cannot be reduced to surefire rules. It is an ever-folding mystery that defies precise predictions. Meanwhile, in this universe, there is no such thing as parts. The whole is the fundamental unity of reality. This is a fundamental change that needs to happen in our thinking and in our in our getting along with one another that we are part of a whole that there's no such thing as an individual apart from his or her relationships. And James addresses this community 
this group of Jesus followers in this, this migrant community in a hostile environment. He says, you need to live as community together if you're going to survive. And the way to do that, the fundamental concept is prayer. Prayer is woven all through this. Prayer for healing, prayer for forgiveness, prayer for each other. There's this fellowship, there's this community with prayer as its central driving motor. And in another one of the commentaries uh, that I used for this, um, for this study, um, um, Ellen Davis Uh, She writes this about prayer. God's praise or prayer is sung in the middle of history. It's the middle of who we are, in the middle of our lives. By those who are looking for God's covenant love to be fully manifest in every aspect of their lives. For people who pray are people living in hope. Biblical tradition associates prayer with hope more consistently than with satisfaction. Hang on that last sentence for a second. Biblical tradition associates prayer with hope more consistently than with satisfaction. Most of our praying is prosperity gospel praying. If I pray, God will give me what I want. He will heal me. He will give me the job. He will give me the finances. He'll give me the car. He'll give me the partner. He'll give me the child. Whatever it is. That's the focus of most of our praying. Prosperity gospel praying. What Davis is saying is that prayer connects us with hope. It connects us with God. It connects us with each other which becomes more important than what the outcome is, than whether I get what I want. And this is a very interesting thing because um, when Cindy and I went to Amsterdam and were starting our church plant there, this is now more than 30 years ago, We decided to take this passage of James, not just Cindy and I, but all of us together that were leading the church, really seriously. As you know, Amsterdam is a place of great wealth. It's a place of great medical um, uh, care. It's it's all the advances of medicine, uh, the Netherlands, Amsterdam, that you can find anywhere. This is not some kind of a poor country or poor village somewhere. But we decided right from the beginning that we would just try to simply obey what James told us to do here in our community. And that is, if someone was sick, if someone had a need, but particularly some kind of a, a, I'll just call it sickness, that we would get together and we would confess our sins to one another and we would praise God and we would anoint with oil and see what happened. And at one point in the, um, in the time that we were there, we had a single lady who was in our congregation who actually, when she came in, she was already pregnant. And so we took her in, and, and um, then at a certain moment, she gave birth. I believe it was on a Tuesday morning, if I'm not mistaken, very early Tuesday morning. And from the moment of birth, the baby didn't breathe. 
So they rushed the baby to the teaching hospital, like comparable, equivalent to our CHOP, and had the baby. It was a him. It was on a, on a respirator. And on, uh, after a day or so, the doctor said to this mother, look, we don't really see much happening here, so if nothing changes in the next couple days, we're going to have to turn off the, the respirator. So she called us. Of course, we were in touch with her all the time. So Wednesday evening, a group of us went over. I don't know, we were maybe 10, 10 people or so. And in the chapel of the hospital, we had a little, I'll just call it a service for lack of a better word. And we sang praises. We confessed our sins to one another. We fellowshiped together. And then a smaller handful of us went up into the um, intensive care where the baby was, this little tiny baby with all the tubes and everything. And uh, we anointed that baby with oil and prayed over him. And then we came back back down. And one of the, one of the funny things that happened was as we were walking back down uh, to the chapel where the rest of the group was, um, uh, a tray of food, someone was wheeling a tray of food down the hall. And they told us that this food had, was left over from a, um, some kind of a dinner that had been held in the hospital and that if we wanted it, we could have it. So we took this tray of food down into the chapel, and we ended up this evening with this, with this literal party. And we were connecting with each other, and we were connecting with God, not based on the result that would happen, but just because we were there. And it was a magnificent thing, and it was something I'll never forget, because literally... We didn't know what was going to happen. We had no expectation that this baby was going to live. Regardless of what the outcome was, we were there with each other and with our God, and he had also provided a banquet. And the next morning, around noon, I got a call that the baby was breathing and that they removed the the respirator. And Saturday morning, In the intensive care, I held the baby in my arms. And there was this wonderful combination of communion, fellowship with each other, fellowship with God. And I sincerely believe that God also heard our prayers and healed the baby. But that wasn't the point. The point was the fact that we were together there with each other in this intimate setting, this community of Jesus followers or people who were attempting to follow Jesus. And God showed up. And I think that's the fundamental thrust of what James is saying in this passage. Fellowship with each other. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another when you're sick that you may be healed. And this healing, and I don't have time now to go into a whole study of it, but this healing, as you actually look in this passage, is multifaceted. It's healing from physical sickness. There's also a hint of this being raised up, perhaps, of the final resurrection. Because, let's face it, the fact is, every one of us is going to die. It doesn't matter how much you pray. In the end, at some point... That prayer is not going to give you life anymore. But then James hints at this being raised up at the resurrection. It's the healing of emotions, the healing of soul pain, the healing of motives, the healing of trauma. It's 
the actual forgiveness of sin and the kind of healing that that brings. And Martha Moore Keish suggests that it perhaps extends even broader. See, she suggests, and I quote, that it is the whole earth that is sick. And we in prayer join ourselves to God's work of righteousness so that not just we ourselves, but the whole earth may be healed. In the end, it's not about me. It's not about us. It's that we can be this community through which God is working so that there can be healing among us of all kinds. And this healing can extend to the whole world. And this healing, James suggests, and again, I find it interesting that this is the way he ends this book. This healing, suggests James, begins in community, with friendship, with people who are meeting one another. And this week in the New York Times, David Brooks wrote an opinion uh, article called, and I found this interesting, What is it about friendships that is so powerful? And I'm going to quote a couple of paragraphs from it. He says, A giant new study led by Raj Chetty of Harvard and three others found that, and listen carefully, poor children who grew up in places where people have more friendships that cut across class lines earn a lot more as adults than children who don't. Poor children who grow up in places where people have more friendships that cut across class lines, and I'm sure he means economic lines also, earn a lot more as adults than children who don't. One of the most powerful predictors of whether you rise out of poverty is how many people you know who are well off this community that cuts through economic and social lines, as the community in James needed to do. That's a predictor of how you're going to rise out of poverty. Then he goes on. Cross-class friendships are a better predictor of upward mobility than school quality, job availability, community cohesion, or family structure. I didn't do all the research. To, I, I, I'm assuming that, that this is somewhere within reality. It sounds really weird, but I'm assuming I didn't myself go back and do all the research. Cross-class cross friendships are a better predictor of upward mobility than school quality, job availability, community cohesion, or family structure. We already know from the work by Yale's Nicholas Christakis and others that behavior change happens in friend networks. If people in your friend network quit smoking, then you're more likely to quit smoking. If your friend gains weight, you are more likely to gain weight. Heck, if one of your friend's friends who lives far away and you've never met gains weight, then you are more likely to gain weight too. The pretty amazing stuff he's saying. The core of what changes you, 
What makes you who you are is your community and your friendships. Brooks says your friends strongly influence how you perceive reality. Your friends shape how you see the world. Your friends alter your desires. So we start off by saying none of us is alone. None of us is an individual. None of us is just a part in this great clock that's the universe. We are together. We are one. And because that's the case, we impact each other. And you will do better in life if you have friendships that cut across class and social and economic lines. That's what James is saying. How are we going to survive in this world in which we find ourselves? By being community with each other, by having friends, by praying for one another, by confessing our sins to one another, by looking and praying for healing of whatever kind that may be. And in order to do that, we need to be vulnerable. This kind of friendship that James is talking about, this kind of community, this kind of reaching one another, this kind of impacting one another, means that we need to choose for vulnerability. You may be familiar with the famous quote by C.S. Lewis from his book, for The Four Loves, about this. To love it all, he says, is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. This, again, is the absolute most difficult thing, I'm sure, for every single one of us. To be vulnerable. We just hardly ever experience it. Partly because a lot of us have, have been in places where we've been unsafe and your vulnerability has resulted in pain and damage and trauma. And part of it is because we're just selfish and we, we just want to keep things to ourselves. And we think, I can, I can manage this. I can make this. I can, I can make this happen. I don't need anybody else. And so we keep our heart intact in, as Lewis says, the casket or coffin of our own selfishness. Where can you get this vulnerability? Where can you... Where can, you, where can you go to find it and to be able to open yourself up to the other person? It can only happen if you're secure in who you are. 
And that security comes not from inside yourself, which is subject to all the twists and turns of everyone's opinion, including your own, of yourself. It comes from Jesus, who calls you his friend. You remember that passage from John 15. Greater love has no man, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How more vulnerable can you be? You are my friend, says Jesus, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You will only be able to break out of yourself that coffin that, that, that Lewis describes. You will only be able to be vulnerable. You will only be able to have true friendships. You will only be able to have true community if that's rooted in your understanding that Jesus, the Lord of the universe and the creator of the world, the creator of the universe, calls you his friend, and that no opinion of anyone else, even of yourself, can change that. And that is the thing that takes away the fear of being vulnerable. And as we grow in fellowship with Jesus, then we begin to understand more and more how we are connected with one another. And this community develops and grows. James concludes this letter, his letter to this vulnerable migrant community by calling for a radical exercise of community, of vulnerability, of openness, and of friendship. And within this community, there is healing in all its richness and fullness of meaning. Of meaning. And this community is built around and upon Jesus, who came as our friend to be our friend and to lead us in the way of friendship and community.